0: Hi there, I'm Jordan Bonaparte, and on my show, Nighttime, I seek out and explore Canada's most fascinating stories. Nighttime stories are told using intimate discussions with those affected.
1: They left you there. That was the last time anyone ever saw her.
0: Jailhouse interviews with those held responsible.
1: The context of that meeting would be some kind of mass shooting.
0: And any other way necessary to get you to the heart of the story. You can join me by subscribing to Nighttime wherever you get streaming audio.
2: True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs,
3: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here alone today in the Crawl Space Studios. Lance Reinstierna is on assignment, but don't worry—he is a part of the upcoming interview. This interview that we're about to play is with Dr. Lee Meller. Really impressive guy. Someone that we met at the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases conference in Albany back in April 2019. He's a doctor. He's a Ph.D. He's a criminologist, an author, and a musician. His books include Rampage, Cold North Killers, and he co-wrote Understanding Necrophilia. So uh, you can see where this is headed already, I think, and probably a good time to mention that uh, discretion is advised. Some of this gets a little bit dark. He also has his own podcast called Murder Was the Case. Definitely give it a listen. We talk about it a bit in the interview. It's really informative and uh, educational. You will like it. Links to all these are in the show notes. So thank you very much. We're uh, excited to introduce you to Dr. Lee Meller and i want to introduce you to another new podcast one that is coming under the crawlspace media umbrella a show that we are really excited about because we we see it as an extension of the mind hunter project uh from netflix if you don't know that show check it out and it's because it's real it's real research into serial killers and that's what these fellows are doing They don't have PhDs like Dr. Lee Meller, but the work is really compelling, and I'm sure Dr. Lee Meller would be really into it because, as you'll hear in the interview, Dr. Lee does this kind of thing as well, interviewing serial killers and trying to learn the psychology behind what makes them tick. And so that's really what this show is all about. It's Chris Duet and Andrew Dodge. They host a podcast called Criminal Perspective. And I'm going to play a clip right now. And again, they're coming under the crawlspace Media umbrella, so you're going to hear a lot more about them. But basically what they do is speak to killers, incarcerated murderers, serial killers, spree killers, you name it. Okay, so here's a quick clip of an upcoming episode of Criminal Perspective it contains an interview with Tashia Stewart. Tashia was convicted of murdering her mother Judy bear in her home on March third, 2011 in Pasco, Franklin County, Washington The state's case that compelled a jury to convict her was that Tashia murdered her mother in a plot to obtain insurance money Tashia claims that the killing was in self-defense and in this clip she outlines what happened that led to her shooting her mother But I need to warn you, discretion is advised
1: We were in her bathroom and I was using the restroom, and she comes up out of her um, closet. She had a big, large walk-in closet, and she comes up out of it while I'm washing my hands. And she's got this axe thing in her hand, and she starts chasing me around the house with it. And she keeps chasing me and keeps chasing me, and uh, I get away from her, and I'm hidden. And I realized that when I'm hidden, that if she were to come in the area that I'm at, that I'm screwed because she um, she can get me, and I you know, I can't get out. I'm trapped. And so I was coming out of where I was at, out of the closet, and she's coming towards me with her axe in her hand, and that's when. Um, I don't remember how I got the gun,
3: and I don't remember pulling the trigger, but I shot her. Okay, so check out this show, Criminal Perspective. There are links in the show notes. You are not going to want to miss it. They also have a Patreon page where you get some real intense serial killer and other kind of killer interviews. And i got to tell you about Stitcher Premium. This show, Crawl Space, began in February of 2017, but not every episode is on the public feed. That's because our archive is with Stitcher Premium. So check it out there, stitcherpremium.com. Use code MMM for a free month. And speaking of MMM, that stands for Missing Maura Murray, we've done 60 creator commentary episodes, which is sort of me and Lance recording over the old episodes. Uh, Really unique project, kind of like a director's commentary. We call it creator's commentary. But there's a lot of new insight and a lot of us making fun of each other. Also, Patreon. We're on Patreon. Check it out over there, patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast. We do some live vaults, which is pretty much me and Lance talking about current true crime cases, but uh, we're diversifying a little bit. Last week, we played a pilot of an episode of a new show that I think we're going to launch at some point, maybe this summer, with our friend Otavia Zapala. So check that out over there at patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast. And we're doing a live show with the podcast True Crime Obsessed, who we find to be hilarious. And the show is Saturday, October 5th, 2019 at 7 p.m. at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York. Check it out. It's me, Lance, Maggie Freeling, and Patrick Hines and Jillian Pensavale of True Crime Obsessed. It's going to be a great show. Tickets are limited, so get them fast. Okay, everybody, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Lee Meller. Welcome to Crawl Space, Dr. Lee Meller. How are you today?
4: Actually not having a bad day, so you caught me in a... Good time.
3: <laughs> well, good. And uh, I, I'm joined here with uh,
0: Dr. Lance. I am not a doctor of anything unless perhaps by the end of this interview, maybe I could get like an honorary doctorate after uh, speaking with you.
4: Yeah, I might be working on something like that. That's I, the way I that have works. little projects in the works.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, I would appreciate that.
3: Yeah, and collectively, we're known as Dr. Crawlspace.
4: Yeah, okay. So,
3: uh, So you can just call us doctor if you want. And either one good. of us will answer.
4: Well, one of you can be D, one of you can be R. When you come together, it's enough. Yeah,
3: <laughs> perfect. Yeah, that makes that
0: makes a lot of sense. I've
3: always said we share a brain anyway.
4: <laughs> so who's the left hemisphere and who's the right? No, no it, It's
0: back in front. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you do a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you it. put it lightly. You've written some
3: books. You you host a podcast called Murder Was the Case. Some of your books here are Cold North Killers, Rampage, and you mostly, you, you are, you live in Canada, so you mostly focus on uh, Canadian crime. Is that accurate?
4: I would say that's accurate of my popular works. The, the third popular work that I'm not technically credited with, but if you look inside the book uh, cover, you'll see that I am an author of about 40% of it. It's the crime book. Um, DK Books has a really beautiful series of coffee table books that are illustrated and they cover things from science to history. And of course, one of those things was crime. And I wrote about 40% of that book. It's actually visually, it's my favorite one I've ever done, but my name is not on the cover, although I wrote it, well, almost half of it. Then academically, I've done Homicide, a Forensic Psychology Casebook. I edited that with my co-editor, Joan Swart, and I wrote about four chapters on that. So the chapters are, this will be of interest to you, on sexually sadistic homicide offenders, necrophilic homicide offenders, general sexual homicide offenders, and psychopathic homicide offenders. And then I edited and wrote a number of chapters for another textbook called Understanding Necrophilia, so that's who you're dealing with.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you keeping it light and uh, having a good
0: personality. I thought we uh, were just going to talk about your music career. <laughs> I know, right?
4: You do that too, but that's a sadder story, man. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, you um, this uh, the crime book looks really interesting. Uh, you have collaborated with American crime writers um, Kathy Scott, Shanna Hogan, and Rebecca Morris. Uh, yeah what was what was it like those are all american crime writers and were you the only canadian one there and how did you get connected with those those uh folks
4: i think there was a guy michael kerrigan on that project too and he's a brit but yeah it was uh i wouldn't call it a collaboration it was that we had a pool of cases and we all got to kind of pick the ones that we wanted to do yep and and then we didn't really communicate kathy was at the center of that hub and so i would do my assignments by the deadline. Speak with Kathy, and they do the same. But I wasn't really in close communication with Shanna, Rebecca, or uh, Michael.
0: Sounds like an interesting arrangement, anyway. So they yeah. they were they um, presented this opportunity by the publishing company. Uh, was it DK the publishing company? There was this an idea that was presented to them, or did they bring it to DK, and then then you got brought into the loop?
4: DK approached Kathy Scott, and Kathy picked the people she wanted to work with. Kathy and I I have worked together for quite some time. She used to actually write for another one of my projects, a digital magazine I had called Serial Killer Quarterly, and she wrote about two or three articles for that. And so we've always had a good relationship professionally i would consider kathy a friend even though we've never met in person and i think that she knows that i'm a good writer and researcher and i'm reliable and so thankfully she brought me on board and the great thing about that is you know they paid you right up front it's like get the articles as we send you a check and so you don't have to worry about royalties if i could have like a gig like that all the time i would be on the gravy train man
3: yeah you're talking to the choir
4: yeah. Have <laughs> yeah, you guys done some writing in that, that department? That's no, the
0: thing. we wish. Yeah, no time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were talking before we started the interview that you work pretty much from when you wake up to when you can't work anymore. And that's just the hustle with this whole gig, you know, whether or not yeah. you actually are a doctor or if you want to write or if you have written. You, there's just always something to do. It's always grind 30.
4: Yeah, that's yeah. it. Grind 30. That, yeah. That that doctorate doesn't make it easier. In fact, it makes it harder because then you got to grind out. Academic articles yeah. that are rigorously reviewed, if they're any good, and then you don't even get paid for them. You just get to keep your job, if you even get one in the first place. All right. Uh, so,
3: well, we we yeah. can give our doctorate back then. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah,
4: yeah you don't get it. you don't want it, man. You don't want <laughs> it. <laughs> but it does. I, I will say this: if you've done it properly, the process does make you stronger. It makes you a better thinker. But that's just not true of all doctorates. There's a lot of bullshit doctors getting handed out, but mine wasn't one of them.
0: Okay. I'll take whichever
3: one. Yeah. We <laughs> definitely we definitely have the bullshit one. Um, so your your presentation at ASOC was on sexual sadists. Is that yeah. accurate? Okay.
4: And I think it was about three-quarters sexual sadists and a quarter necrophilic offenders. And then so then you get into paraphilic mutilation between the two of those. Yeah.
3: It was pretty disturbing, um, but very captivating.
0: It really was the talk of uh, at least that. I mean, it was the talk. It might have been the talk of the whole thing. Aside from aside from our panel, of course, which we we got dominated the the 20 minute standing ovation after. But Mm -hmm. I mean, whenever people were talking about who was speaking, they always went back to your session and just how uh, articulately you depict some of these really heinous uh, circumstances and crimes.
4: Yeah, someone has to do it. And I was selected. So of the baby boom generation, the guy that I would say was one of the best at doing that was, um, is Dr. Eric Hickey. And he's out of California. He wrote Serial Murderers and Their Victims, which, for my money, is probably the best overall textbook on serial murder. And I met uh, Dr. Hickey through a listserv that we were both a part on. And we got along and this was around the time I was starting my PhD and some advice for your listeners, just be bold in life. You know, don't go, Oh my God, it's Sarah Kiki. I can't believe he's talking to me. I just went, Hey, you know, I'm starting my PhD. We get along. I like you. How would you like to be on my doctoral committee? And he's like, yeah, sure. And so that was a member of my doctoral committee is having arguably one of the top five, serial murder experts in the world on there just by asking, you know, just excellent. by being yeah. confident. And so what happened was Eric identified pretty quickly that I have something, let's call it wrong, right with me. So it's, it's right for what I do and it's right. Cause someone needs to do it, but clearly there's something wrong with me <laughs> that makes me be able to do this right thing. And that is to basically go, into the bottom of the abyss, the very bottom, and then step into the sewer that runs through it, which I guess if it's an abyss, it's a floating sewer. Mm. He said, look, there's people that have done sexual sadism and rape and pedophilia. There is no shortage of people that have done that. He said, but there's almost no exploration of necrophilia and that kind of thing, and you can do it, so you should, because that's where you'll stand out. And so that's where I began, and then I pretty much mapped out that space, and I figured out all those ideas, and then after that, I was able to get out into the other kind of paraphilic behaviors, so I got the sex sadism stuff, and the pedophilia, and all that in many ways, yeah.
0: Now, I am assuming the obvious reason why no one has really touched the necrophilia is because of just the horrendousness of uh, and the grossness of the whole concept were you able to easily get past that because you just saw that it could be something of of the the niche that you could stand out in
4: yeah i mean i don't think it's as bad as torture so if you're talking about sexual sadism if you want to look at this from a, a rational perspective i don't know what you guys have seen i've seen some awful stuff having to do what i do You know, and I I shouldn't say having choosing to do what I do, but it's always worse to see somebody getting murdered or tortured than it is to see someone just doing things to a dead body. And so I think that it's actually not entirely true that necrophilia is, for lack of a better word, somehow worse or like it's grosser maybe. But apples and oranges. does, Does gross bother you as much as the? kind of shivers and just rage and, and and frustration, like an emotional concoction that I can't even describe to you that you get watching somebody be hurt as they're still alive no, and reacting in pain. Yeah. Nowhere near it, I'll take right. gross. You right. know, I, I have to do it all. If I don't have it all, then I'm useless. If right. you're just an expert in necrophilia, you don't know anything about sex sadism, Sometimes you're going to confuse it to you. Everything you see is going to be necrophilia. Okay. You know, I, I covered all those bases. I have to. But the point is that necrophilia is not the hard part for me. Are you guys familiar with the one lunatic, one ice pick video that the Canadian murderer Luca Magnata posted on the Internet? No. Okay. Well, it's pretty bad. And I had to watch that at the time to comment on it. He basically rapes and mutilates a corpse over a series of about 10 minutes. Uh, and he, he makes it look like he's cannibalizing it, but I figured out he wasn't, but it's, it's terrible. Like, I mean, he's doing this, to the corpse of his victim, but once again, it's just the gross factor because that guy's not suffering. I would have rather watch that any day mm-hmm. than watch him hurt the, the guy while he was still alive. You know watch them wriggle and squirm and mm. scream sometimes when they they're trying to scream but they've got a gag in their mouth or their face is smashed in and so you get this, this gurgle or this or that kind of thing that's much more difficult i think i've made my point jesus
0: yeah, yeah. Where, where jesus christ where do you see these videos <laughs> like where do you see that who and it, why do
3: you see and, it, that? and it's pretty far down there anyway like like most people can't even get to one of them let alone two of them yeah like uh like you're describing
4: Yeah, exactly. So in answer to the question, where did I see that, uh, what I was specifically thinking of was, there was a video that predated the Magnata one called Three Guys, One Hammer. And that was from Ukraine. And there were these two psychopaths, they weren't sexual, they were more like thrill killers, just two young, I think they're around the age of about 20. And they killed something like, I'm going to get this wrong, but something like 21 people in 17 days. So technically they're more spree killers and they would film it on their cell phones. You know, you got a camera on your cell phone and they didn't broadcast it. They never intended for anyone to see it, but somehow it got leaked onto the internet. Hmm. And uh, what I needed to do is at one point comment on, comment on what I would call, sadism that isn't sexually sadistic because not all sadism is obviously sexually gratifying it can just be cruelty right intense cruelty and so i watched that in order to be able to articulate an example of this other uh non-sexual sadism and it was awful to watch
3: now, I have a, uh, something here written down from your panel at, at ASOC that says, uh, watching the victim suffer and not inflicting the pain, uh, that is what makes a sexual sadist. Is that accurate?
4: Yeah, that's actually in the uh, DSM-5. That's specified. So any other definition, sometimes people just let it slip and they, and they know better. But really, it's, it's about the response. So I shouldn't just say watching. I should say hearing can work, too. So you have someone like Lawrence Bittaker, a.k.a. Pliers. who got that name because he would twist the nipples of and breasts of his victims with a pair of pliers and I think maybe some other areas, too. And this was back in around 1980 in California. And obviously he would get off watching them, uh, their faces in fear and pain and, and, and humiliation, too. That would be a part of it. But the recordings he made were audio recordings. And that's what he would replay to relive those experiences. They would have been like mass right? The yeah. materials, they're basically porn for him. So you can also hear it, yeah. too. I imagine you, you might be able to make an argument that you could also feel it. So I know I'm already taking you guys down a dark trail, but you guys kind of asked for it. We did.
0: Yeah, we don't really expect to have someone like you on and then actually talk about your music career so. <laughs>
4: this this is uh Uh,
0: this is expected
4: so uh, like another example is and this is just something i'm putting on the table as a possibility you have ted bundy who apparently would be sodomizing his victims as he murdered them and he would get a sexual thrill from feeling their sphincter like clenching and unclenching as he was killing them as they were dying so I don't know, perhaps you could say that's a type of response too to you know is it at some point it's, it's hard to know where to draw the line, but definitely seeing and hearing the reaction of someone in pain, humiliation, and fear that's the and being sexually aroused by it, that's the core of sexual sadism. Take up the sexual, arousal part, you just got sadism.
3: and uh, wow, and uh, so during your panel, you talked a lot about a guy named David Parker Ray was uh, yeah. a serial killer and uh, was, it, it was some very disturbing stuff, uh, including yeah. uh, tapes that, um, that he would play for his victims?
4: Yes, and that was because it would terrify them. And he had a series of tapes, and at one point they were on the internet and they got taken down. It's one of those things where you went, damn it, I should have just known better and grabbed them while I still had the chance. <laughs> but they used to have the full body of the tapes, and you can play these in a room full of cops and they'll get shutters. I've got bits and pieces of them, but he would, uh, you know, he had a tape that I think he made in the seventies and then one that he made in the eighties and he would keep updating it and trying different things. But imagine you're a woman. Uh, a lot of the time it was sex workers that he would abduct off the streets of Albuquerque and you're brought with uh, you know a bag over your head and you're, you're tied up and you don't know where the hell you are, but you're placed into a room and you know you're in a lot of trouble. And then you just hear this voice with this bit of a cowboy drawl, come on, like seemingly everywhere, really loud, you know, hello there, bitch. Uh, you're probably wondering what's going on, probably terrified, bound, can't see nothing. And then he would go on for 20 minutes and he'd describe how helpless their situation was how they could try all these things at he, but he's done this a million times before and it never works. He's seen it all. And this is exactly what's going to happen to you. You're going to be raped in every hole. You're going to be tortured. And if I feel like killing you, I might, but he didn't kill all of his victims. Some of them, he just gave drugs to and and hypnotized. And they kind of found themselves wandering lost along these desert roads going, I don't know what happened, but I'm in a lot of pain. and where the hell was I for the past week. So that just goes to show also that um, sadism, whether sexual or not, it's not always, it doesn't always necessitate murder, right? Um, In fact, I would say in a lot of the cases, the murder is just to get rid of the witness, just to finish it off. In the case of David Parker Ray, here's a guy who had devoted his life to, making it so that he could keep these women for weeks, you know, living out his ultimate sexual fantasy for weeks, sometimes I think even months. And that sexual fantasy was to do terrible things to them. I mean, he had a gynecological chair set up in a trailer with giant studded dildos and an electric breast stretcher and uh, and electrical shock uh, devices. And I could keep going on, but you get the point. That's why I use David Parker Ray, as an example of a certain type of sadist, what I would call like a, a complex sadist or maybe like a grand sadist or something for, like the, at the most extremes of organization and paraphernalia and wanting to prolong it, he's just the best example. So I always give him uh, when I give that talk.
0: Yeah, it's pretty effective. So he's, not, <laughs> he's no longer with us, right? He he died in prison?
4: Yeah, he got what I call the devil's blessing. So he made it till about the age of 60. They think he killed his first victim when he was about 16. And he'd been killing about one woman a year from the age of 16 to 60. So that's what, like, about 44 victims, I think. And they never found any of the bodies. So we know he's a serial killer, but he was never convicted of serial murders and they think what what he did was that he got rid of the bodies down mine shafts and he, because he was a ranger at a lot of these parks out in New Mexico and so he would know where all the mine shafts and canyons and things were and he could just dispose of them down there and now I've strayed from your original question but I was talking about when they caught him so he gets to age 60 that's a long illustrious serial killing career he gets in the prison and his girlfriend you know she's cooperating with the authorities against him it looks like he's totally fucked no he is a master manipulator he manages to flip her and convince her not to cooperate with the authorities anymore even though he's not even pro in proximity with her. He gets the people in the prison to like him, including some of the guards. And they're passing messages around and everything. Like I swear, if Satan was walking the earth, it would be David Parker Ray, and he'd be wearing cowboy boots. The first trial he goes to, they don't even believe one of the surviving victims. He David Parker Ray says, hey, it was consensual. She was into it. You know, it's just BDSM, which isn't sexual sadism, by the way, because the fact of something being non-consensual is also, it's a part of the crucial criteria for sexual sadism. So if you're into BDSM, you're not a sexual sadist. And that was his argument. This was a BDSM encounter. She agreed to it, you know, and they believed him. And so this poor, brave woman, Kelly, got up there and talked about this horrific ordeal and reliving the most nightmarish things and didn't even wasn't even believed and and her tormentor is then free but they managed to i think they uncovered more evidence or there was there was some way that they got a second trial out of it and when he went back on trial he was convicted by that time he was having heart problems i think he did less than a year in jail or just around a year and as i've said it's not like he was doing a hard time he, people liked him in prison he, despite the fact of what he was he just was able to do that and then he died so i call that the devil's blessing even though i don't actually believe in the devil i think in an allegorical sense that's the best way to describe it i mean he almost wasn't punished for a life of absolute evil and depravity
0: damn you know don't name your kids with three names because that there's (laughs) just no statistically i believe (laughs) There's there's no good that's coming from that.
3: I think they just use the middle name when uh, when when the media gets a hold of a serial killer. Am I wrong there, Lee?
4: I think that's probably likely. Yeah, there's probably a lot of David Rays in the world. Yeah. You know, check your LinkedIn. <laughs> 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 you are getting messages. I'm like, deleting you, I'm you... deleting
0: my LinkedIn now. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, but I've noticed that there's definitely an overrepresentation of people with the name Lee. Yeah, as like myself, but it's usually as a middle name. Yeah. And I've often wondered, is that like a Confederate thing? You know, is that like uh the... oh, sure,
0: like a Robert E. Lee thing?
4: Yeah, and another one is Wayne. John you Wayne. Find... Yeah,
0: you're right. You're yeah, absolutely
4: right. Yeah. yeah, and I've noticed a lot of Dwayne's lately or Dwayne's too. So those there's like certain types of names that seem to be not exactly rare, but not common in day to day life that pop up a lot in serial killers, and I have a theory about the Wayne thing. If you guys want to hear sure. it, sure.
0: Oh, please, I was just going to say this feels to me like a new crawlspace segment that we could use you for on occasion, which is these, um, like sort of red light type uh names or you know, like indicators.
4: <laughs> yeah, so my idea with Wayne is like, w- w- why did this name suddenly come into circulation? Like, you don't mean hear about many people in the 19th century called wayne like the outlaw wayne this right no it's like one of these sort of names that arose with the baby boom oh
3: john wayne
4: you're right ahead of me man and watch john wayne (laughs) john wayne is a macho guy he doesn't take any shit he's a hard man he doesn't express his feelings and so any father that named his kid after john wayne has probably got statistically a likelier chance of being a bit of an asshole to his son and raising his son in that kind of way than. And now, now I'm not. This is not like really a, a condemnation of, of the Wanes of the world, <laughs> but I'm just Wayne. saying that if you if you run the averages,
3: yeah, yeah. No, I think that's really compelling, actually, and you can probably trace it back to being some truth to that. Yeah, yeah.
4: even
0: um, even Lee. So there's Lee Marvin, who is the uh, another tough guy actor right yeah. around that same time.
4: There you go. That. Yeah, yep.
0: There you go. Um,
3: also, yep. uh, regarding uh, Lee killers, this Robert Lee Yates, we talked to uh, Cloyd Steiger about Uncle and, Cloyd. Yeah, Uncle Cloyd, and he came up a few times as well as there was an there was also you went to visit a uh, was it a Wayne in in Seattle with Cloyd?
4: Yeah, Dwayne Lee Harris. Dwayne uh, Lee one Harris. The, oh, so that's
3: both Dwayne and okay.
4: Yeah, I guess you're right. Stay as <laughs> far <laughs> away from that guy. Yeah. Yeah, we went to see Dwayne. Um, if, if it's okay, I, I only want to talk vaguely about it because it's, I've established a, a relationship with him and there's got to be some trust there. He's in prison, he's a target. And let to just say in the long run, it's better for me to speak with Dwayne and have that trust than rather just... Spill all the beans now, and then he won't talk to me. Yeah, anymore. okay.
3: But so are you, we so can you're talk saying, about
4: Dwayne's case. You are saying
3: you like Dwayne more than you like us? Is that what you're saying?
4: You like Dwayne more than you like Cloyd? I'm saying Dwayne's more valuable to me than you guys. Are. That's that. that, makes, that makes sense.
0: We'll, <laughs> we'll 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 take our doctorate back. <laughs>
1: but...
2: I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood: The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hi listeners, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires, and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast
4: Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth. Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence and give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.
2: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today, and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Parts.
0: we will say yeah. that when uh, when cloyd told us the quick story he said that you had a completely different impression of prison so i i want to um if you're able to tell us a little bit about your expectations going in there and the reality
4: I don't know that I had many expectations going in there. I I did think that when we went into a room with Dwayne, that it would be larger than a closet. And that if it wasn't that he might be wearing handcuffs, but we were just in the room about the size of a closet with a serial killer who almost being though, he's almost 60. He didn't look it. He looked like he could be in his late forties, you know, um, athletic tall black guy uh, gang banger. those things aren't mutually exclusive you can be in a gang and also be a sexual serial killer you know you just don't tell your homeboys about that part of it and so yeah i mean I, it it was a situation that on paper was very dangerous uh but what are you gonna do just say i can't do it and cry and run out no you just Suck it up. You go, here's the situation. If shit kicks off, well, then I'm going to have to deal with that. So I would say that was the only thing about the prison that surprised me is I thought there would be a little bit more security. But maybe they've taken Dwayne's measure and realized that he's not quite that nuts.
0: Okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. And that is interesting to hear regardless because – with shows like, uh, I don't know, like Mindhunter, you see them go and interview killers, and it's got, you know, there's a security guy there, it's a big room, there's a table, they're chained down to the table with any show, right? So it's just interesting to hear that they basically put you in a closet with a serial killer.
4: Yeah, well, Floyd was in there too, so it was two-on-one, but I mean, the guy's a psychopath, right? Yeah. And he would he would admit that to you, and he's a gangbanger. So even if you have a cop, and, and myself, we're both, I think, bigger than the average guy, it's still something to contend with. It's something that you shouldn't underestimate the capacity for a guy like that to just pick up, like there was a computer monitor in there. He could have just picked up the computer monitor and just brained one of us with it. And if he did it quickly enough, we would have been out long enough to get the other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah.
3: Wow. Damn. Um, So, so I take it that didn't happen. There was no altercation.
4: No, it's just a matter of, you know, don't make him mad, and why would you? you yeah. It's better to be his friend, and you right. know that's what. And that's what I'm doing here. It's like I I could give you all the dirt on Dwayne, but you know we have a relationship right now, and that doesn't mean I'm a serial killer groupie. It means I'm being clever.
0: Right, right.
3: Yeah. Um, I I really appreciated your episodes with Cloyd, um, on your podcast Murder Was the Case, and I was kind of really jealous, to be honest, that you got to hang out with Cloyd and drink some bourbon. Um, And it seemed like it was getting real kind of late. And were you guys like really drinking bourbon and everything?
4: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. I'm so
3: jealous. Do you think
0: that Cloyd, Uncle Cloyd, would fake drinking bourbon?
3: Well, I don't know. In in your last episode, it was also a dive bar kind. But you were like, well, it's the morning, so we can't really uh, pretend we're drinking.
4: Yeah, that was it. But no, that's all authentic. Like, yes, uh, depending on the guest and the time of day, But sometimes even when I start in the afternoon, no, like we authentically drink. And sometimes we drink a lot. Uh, I drank pretty hard with Cloyd for sure. And that's one of the reasons we're friends. Uh, I told that, I think it was a wannabe criminology student messaged me on LinkedIn before I went to the conference. And he's he's saying, hey, I'm going to the the ASOC conference. I'll see you there. You know, I just have all these questions for you. You know, like what did you do to become a criminologist and question two and three. And I'm busy as I told you guys. So I just responded to him. I said, you know what, man, just hit me up at the conference. We'll sit down over a whiskey and, and I'll, you know, I, and then I'll answer your questions then. And then he comes back at me. He's like, well, you know, I don't drink. And I said, well, if you want to get along with police officers and you want to get inside this and the scoop i'm afraid you're gonna have to and then i didn't ever see him so whatever (laughs) you know that sounds like a bit of an asshole thing to do like i don't know his history but that's also a reality i mean there's there's a heavy drinking culture in among police officers and they don't want you to be this snooty academic sitting there with your legs crossed drinking a flute of champagne moderately with your nose in the air pontificating about why statistics shows they're wrong right and that's what so many academics fuck up and the reason that i think guys like cloyd and other police officers get along with me and will and will hang out with me and sit along and drink with me and and, and become friends is because I'm, I'm the opposite of that you know you don't have to act that way to be an intelligent educated person
0: looks like i'm gonna have to change up my technique because i'm I got my mimosa ready to go every time I'm going to talk to some law enforcement official. You really started hey, it now, i'm
4: A mimosa's okay, but it- <laughs> if you're going to have a mimosa, you're supposed to have it in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hangover beverage, right? So you yeah, get it. That's up, right. And that's how you get your hair, the dog, and your citrus in, in the morning.
0: Your vitamin C. Do you have a doctorate in um, mixology, as mixology as well? Mixology, <laughs> doctorate mixology.
1: <laughs>
4: Ah. Uh, I've often uh, joked that I have a PhD in THC. Nice.
0: (laughs) Nice. Speaking of mind-altering substances, I'm curious about your opinion uh, in regards to Jeffrey Dahmer and what his level of sexual sadism was.
4: I don't think Dahmer was a sexual sadist.
0: Oh, good. Okay, this is going to be fun because he was known for abducting and holding people against their will and trying to inject them with chemicals and and he was a homosexual man, right, preying but on homosexual yeah. young men. I,
3: I want to guess, though, because I had something else written down here. Uh, picarism? Yeah. Pickerism, Sexual arousal arousal from stabbing or cutting someone? Is that what uh, Dahmer was all about?
0: Give us your Dahmer.
4: Okay, so Dahmer did hurt people. So I'd say he did things to them that were torturous, but not torture. Okay, so if there was pain involved, it was a byproduct of something else that he was trying to achieve. And the worst examples of this is when he tried to, he drilled through the skulls of his victims and he injected, I think it was hot water sometimes, sometimes acid into their brains. And it wasn't to hurt them in the sense of causing pain. Although he obviously knew that must've happened, but it was to kill their will. He wanted a kind of zombie, really. You know, just think of a a zombie. It kind of stumbles around. It's not smart enough to leave your apartment, but it's warm and you can have sex with it and it's compliant. You can always dominate it. That was pretty much what that was about. So he strangled his victims to death a lot of the time. I think that was probably because it was the least messy and if he had used a gun it he was in an apartment building so it would have made more of a noise so I think that the reason he strangled most of his victims which would seem sadistic was actually just that it was after he drugged them too a lot of the time so it's just a quiet way to to get to the body having the body that's everything that's Dahmer's main purpose he's like So if David Parker Ray exemplifies sexual sadism on a sort of grand extreme level, Dahmer exemplifies necrophilia on a grand extreme level. It's all about getting that body. And I mean, I don't know how many levels you guys want to get into this, but I I could do Dahmer for about 10 minutes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Keep going. Keep going. This is really interesting.
4: If you track Dahmer's sexual interests in childhood, through childhood and teenagers, uh, years, it was more that he began being interested in dissecting things, Mm -hmm. like animals and stuff in the woods and putting his hands into the incisions. And he would talk about being sexually aroused by feeling the warm coils of the entrails and, you know, chopping things up and seeing how they worked and not meaning to at first, but, just suddenly realizing that this was sexually arousing him, he's also a homosexual. So now imagine yourself in this situation. You're in a time when you're you're growing up in Akron, Ohio. That's where he grew up. He'd had he moved to Wisconsin, I think, later as an adult. But you're growing up in Akron, Ohio, in you know the the 70s. It's not the kind of environment where you can come out as a homosexual. Like you're gonna be ridiculed, probably targeted for violence. Even his own father admitted that he wouldn't have been fine with Jeff coming out this way. So he's living with that stigma, as were probably other people in Akron, Ohio at the time. But then imagine that it goes so much deeper that you realize that not only are you a homosexual, but you're sexually aroused by the thought of cutting a man open and seeing what the inside of his chest cavity looks like and playing around with his entrails and and having sex with the wounds, you know, and cutting his head off, because then it develops, right? The fantasy develops. It, it starts with that, and then it goes into cutting them into pieces, and you know, putting the head over here and cutting the penis off, and and then it, it, it graduates eventually all the way to eating them. And who knows? I, I, is is the is that the end, or or is could it have gone farther? It's a spectrum of. of behavior around dead bodies, sex, mutilation, eating, and he just progressed through all of it. So it's not only that he couldn't ever seek help because of his homosexuality. If that's a hard conversation, how do you have a conversation with people that actually there's more? It's not just that I'm in the guys. It's that I don't want them to be moving and i want to i would uh, really i guess they have to be dead because i want to like cut out their heart and jack off into the cavity and then eat their heart you know like you can't have that conversation
0: okay so what is the difference between someone like ted bundy who is who has uh, stated that his uh his murders come from a place of rage where he like like almost hears another personality growling at him to kill and and that's like full of rage, I'm assuming. And Jeffrey Dahmer seems like weirdly full of curiosity.
4: Mm, yeah. Well, I think the a key thing that we have to and, and and by the way, Bundy was a necrophile too. Yeah. But he was also a sexual sadist where Dahmer was not. Bundy was a full blown psychopath. So I don't know how much you guys know about that, but if you get a score of 30 or higher, you meet the clinical cutoff for being a categorical psychopath. Dahmer was psychopathic, as many people are. You know, he has traits of a psychopath, but he didn't hit that 30 score. I think his sort of mental state is probably better accounted for by something like an autism spectrum disorder or perhaps schizoid personality disorder. He might've been on his way to being fully psychotic at some points. That was debated a lot in court. So the psychological part of them is very different. I mean, Bundy's a sexually sadistic psychopath who likes a bit of necrophilia. Dahmer has got some other mental thing going on. He's not sexually sadistic. He's psychopathic, but not a psychopath. So they're different in, in that way, even though some of their postmortem behaviors were the same. I think that Dahmer did have some rage. He does have one victim. I remember he he was out drinking and he took him back to a hotel room and he just woke up and he realized that he beat the guy to death. But he couldn't really tell you what that was about because he was blackout drunk at the time. But there was definitely some rage in there. But I think yes, Bundy a lot more so. And let's begin with, okay, what's the relation of these men to their victims? They covet them. In the case of Jeffrey Dahmer, he covets men who I think that he liked athletic men. And a lot of has been made out of, well, he you know, he was killing black men, therefore it's racist or a hate crime. This might be controversial to say. I think he was going for like the black guys with a sort of athletic very muscular bodies, you know, that, that's the commonality you'll see in there. He never went for an overweight black guy or whatever. He also lived in that neighborhood. So I think that that was his ideal was this muscular man. And if you, if you look at the photographs he took of his victims after death, they would always emphasize the torso element, right? Mm -hmm. This other, like the chest and the abs and that accentuated. And and where would he cut into first? Right. Mm And and so in a way, it's kind of interesting because that's what women find interest, um, sexually arousing in men or, you know, captures their interest is, you know, a nice strong chest and abs. And so I, I think that that was what Dahmer coveted. You know, that was his ideal male. Now, Bundy is like the heter completely heterosexual. And he goes after the middle-class, beautiful, long haired ideal of a woman at the time. Like I found, I look at pictures of, Don, um, I look at pictures of Bundy's victims. I find them all universally attractive. So both are coveting, but I think Bundy had more of a sense of like rage because he felt that this type of woman was eternally unattainable to him. And he thought about it at much deeper levels than Dahmer did. And he made this about his legitimacy. So he came from a different family background than Dahmer. Dahmer had a fucked up family, but his mom and dad were together. Bundy very well could have been, he was an illegitimate child. He never met his birth father. He might've known and it's suspected that his grandfather was actually his so an incestuous conception, right? So you've got this person who's very conscious about their circumstances. He, he grew up for a long time thinking his mother was his sister. And so he's starting off with like a feeling already of being uh, stigmatized and outside of the order. Although, I mean, you could say the same of Dahmer, too but I think he framed it in a much more of a social class way. Like, I'm not good enough for these women. And I think he always knew that that he could, for a while he could wear this mask and he could get by and he could pretend to be from this middle-class family. And I think pretend to be normal. I think he was very aware of the fact that we, he was abnormal. Dahmer couldn't really ever fake being normal. So he didn't have that problem, but Bundy could for a while but then he would know that the mask would invariably slip they'd find him out and he'd be rejected and i think that he needed this these women more so than sexually he needed them as almost like to tell him that his identity was okay they were a sign that he his identity was fine but it wasn't so there's this whole other element to bundy too and that's where like more of the rage comes from like they both have rage but bundy's got more of it and it's because it comes from that complex process which i can get into more if you want but if you think i've done a okay job of articulating it we can move on
0: no that's excellent yeah that's that's definitely good very compelling is that something that has um that has drawn you to the criminology aspect is that it just seems like this giant knot and all of the threads in this knot are different um different uh, personalities and different set of circumstances that these people have been raised in because it's, like you just said Dahmer and bundy were different uh set of circumstances that they were raised in and and they have different personalities so listening to you sort of try to untangle the knot i can i can imagine that that has to be an addictive uh an addictive thing that's hard to let go of
4: yeah, that's it. You've got it. Exactly. In fact, I've used that term myself. Give me the doctor it's, back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've got it, man. Um, <laughs> so Dr. Lance, this is what, when I was in there talking to Dwayne, you know, one of the things he said to me is like, look, man, I don't know. Like, I I, I don't know. Like, I, I'm. it's just there's a screw loose. There's just something wrong with me. And, you know, I said, Somehow the, the term knot came up. I can't remember who. It could have been I, Cloyd, or Dwayne that brought it up. And I said to him, but Dwayne, it's such an interesting knot to try and untangle. I know that you've probably, you know, you know I, I don't know actually, but I think that you might have spent a lot of time thinking about it. And like, we all want to know what that is. You probably do. I do. Cloyd does. We all want to do so. Though it might seem out of our reach, like let's try because it's fascinating. It's it's really the most uh, worth that you have is this complex puzzle that you are, and That's a good point. if we yeah. can just unthread it a little bit, you know. And you're not going to say anything to a guy a guy like Dwayne, like we can use it to catch killers in the future. You know, you, you can't do that with he doesn't care. Right. He Doesn't care. But talking about Dwayne to Dwayne is he's interested in, you know, he thinks that he's interesting. And, you know, fortunately, so do I. It doesn't mean that I think that he's a good person or that he should be revered or that he should be put on a platform. But psychologically, he's interesting. Actually, most people are psychologically interesting, even outside of serial killers, right? Yep. I I even find people fascinating how uh, just normal people just to watch how hypocritical they can be sometimes without even seeming to notice it.
3: You talking about Lance with that?
4: Uh, no, I wasn't. <laughs> don't, don't give me.
3: <laughs> See, Lancey Grace. Don't, don't, he's he's about getting, to get I'm all fired getting, I'm up. Getting going. Uh, getting <laughs> um, going. I also got a stat from the ASOC, and I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure it was the stat you. guy over here. Yeah, I'm, I'm just the stat guy today. But uh... Sorry,
4: We figured out who the left brain is.
3: <laughs> Thank you. <No. laughs> I'll take my doctorate back, too. <laughs> Um, yeah, you got it. <laughs> did, did you give some kind of stat that it was like 23% of sexual sadist crimes begin with the criminal pretending to be a police officer or law enforcement?
4: That may have been among a cluster of stats that I gave. It wouldn't be that they begin with that, but it's that they often impersonate a police officer as a form of their M.O., Okay, and yeah. it's, a, it, it, it's a very good impersonation, right? Uh, sorry, a very good tactic, right? Because yeah. if someone comes up to you in a police officer's uniform, you know, resist that your own peril. Like right, we've right. seen what happens when people do. Yeah. And there's a good reason for that. So it's very complicated. But at the same time, do you then, what if someone comes up to you in a police officer's uniform and they've got a badge, but they're not a police officer? Like, do you, you ask the cop, can I study your badge? Can And especially if you're a, a prostitute strolling along the strip in the night and they roll up on you in a car or something like that, right? It's just a very good ruse. And sexual sadists, I would say a lot of them, especially the more complex ones like David Parker Ray or Bundy, who I'd say is a little less complex but still a very organized offender, um, they both use that ruse, by the way. And... I think for them, planning it is a part of the fantasy, maybe not a a sexual part of the fantasy, but there's more to it than just the sex part. There's like the excitement of it, you know, there's the execution of the plan. And I think that's something that we can relate to too. When you have an idea and you start to put the wheels in motion and you go, Oh yeah. And then this will make it work even better. Like, you know, You guys have probably had the idea for the podcast where one of you said something, the other one's going, "Yeah," and you've high-fived. You get excited. They have that same excitement over the planning process. We
0: we fist bump. We do. We we don't blow up the fist after, but we do fist bump. (laughs) Um, The high five is a little too bro-y for us. Yeah, we're doctors and all. Yeah, we don't. We're not. We're not bros. Yeah.
4: What is what is fist bumpy? Like I, I do the fist bump, but I don't know where it came from.
0: I feel like baseball. Yeah, yeah, it seems like a baseball thing. Maybe I'm wrong, though. Yeah, we'll just go with baseball. Yeah,
1: yeah.
4: I think I prefer it to anything with an open palm. Because me too. Open palms, they can get sweaty. Like, And I'm not just saying it's the other person. It can be me too, right? Oh, I, I have sweaty goes. palms right now. Yeah. Yeah, me too, and I don't know why. I'm not nervous. I'm not hot. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the fist pump is just a bit like, it means the same thing, but... I yeah, sp- I'm not sure of where that arose from, so I'll take your baseball answer. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, like I feel it. like
0: I can aim better with the fist. Definitely,
3: the exploding like,
0: part came from baseball. I think.
4: Yeah, like the <laughs> home yeah. run. Yeah,
3: yeah,
0: yeah. But I can, I can aim better. Like this, I, I miss. It's a little less intimate yeah, yeah.
3: than the open, the open hand. Yeah,
1: yeah.
4: No, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, I know. There's nothing wrong than like a high five that doesn't go right, where you don't like connect. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and parts it's, the it's palm, some- and then. You feel guilty, like, now you're not bonded or paired or you're somehow screwed up in your coordination. But if you really think about it, why would it go 100% right every time? That's a good point. Yeah.
3: Yeah, two people swinging I mean, objects the, at each other. I mean, very—
4: Different, di- yeah. different sized hands. Yeah, the odds right? of it
3: not going— trajectory is much larger. You don't know if one's a righty. Maybe no. the other person's a lefty, and you, then you're all fucked up. You know what's
0: god goddamn worse than that? What? A failed handshake Oof. when you squeeze too soon on the handshake and you end up squeezing the more of the fingers mm. than actual you know because mm. on a handshake oh, yeah, you want to yeah. get that get real awkward you want to get that in in there like thumb like boom like eh. that's where you want to be but sometimes you squeeze too soon and you can't take that back you can't unring that bell
4: <laughs> well sometimes that's the fault of the person whose hand you're shaking too. like if you squeeze too early, it's like, that means their hands already kind of limp. Yeah. Like when fish. I went to a handshake, <laughs> I, I've at least got a semi, right? You know, <laughs> right. I, a little st- st- stiff hand, right. Yep. So if I start to hear the, feel the grasp coming, then I'm ready to come back and you can judge a guy by his handshake for sure. That's something that, you know, I've learned, That's an old wisdom that I go by. Yeah, you can tell. You know, I've met a lot of guys with the sort of weak handshake and their character follows.
0: And they all have middle names of (laughs) League. Yeah. (laughs) What about Dwayne? I'm
4: trying to think think if I shook Dwayne's hand now. I I don't think I did. In fact, I don't even think he remembers my name. That's how funny it is to interact with someone like that. At first, he didn't want me to write him and then started to warm up to me at the end. I don't even think he knows my name. So if I wrote him, he'd be like, who are you? I'd have to tell him. You were the yeah.
0: guy that I wanted to throw the computer monitor at until you <laughs> proved, proved yourself to be a pretty stand-up guy.
4: That, that's it. But that just goes to show like, how um, self-interested he is and how little you matter to him, ultimately, even if he's trying to fake it, right, right. or even if he's interested for some reason. He was much more interested, actually, when – and this came up naturally – Uh, that I was a doctor then things changed Ah. because he said I don't really know what's going on with me man like I ain't no doctor and I just saw the opportunity for a a joke and to point out and said yeah but I am Dwayne so you know like that's why we're here and me and Cloyd laughed I'm pretty sure Dwayne laughed too and then the whole tone of the interview changed oh I'm with a doctor now so this person's actually you know maybe of the status that is needed to begin to understand me. Something that he doesn't understand himself. Yeah. He probably remembers that I'm a doctor, but he couldn't tell you my first and last name.
0: What's really interesting, you said a little while ago before we started talking about handshakes and and whatnot, you said that he said something to the effect of, I know I have a screw loose, but I can't tell you why. That's really fascinating to me that someone knows that they have a problem. Like, Like in the movie Seven, when he's like, do you know you're crazy? Like, I love
4: that line.
1: When a person is insane, as you clearly are, do you know that you're insane? Maybe you're just sitting around, reading guns and ammo, masturbating in your own feces. Do you just stop and go, wow, it is amazing how fucking crazy I really am. Yeah? Do you guys do Doesn't
0: that? that resonate into real life when you're talking to someone like him and he says, I guess I gotta. I don't know why I have a screw loose? Just to be self-aware enough to know that you have something wrong with you, I think yeah. is very, really, it's curious for me.
4: Yeah, I think that at the end of the day, you know, after probably sitting in prison for a long time, okay, and thinking about why he was there and why he did what he did, he maybe just came to the conclusion that he doesn't really know why, which is like a really deeply unsatisfying answer because we think that like it's this we could do the psychological excavation where we can go through layers of the person's history and genetics and that we'll eventually get to it. But even though we might be able to do that, that still doesn't mean that that person's aware of that at the time that they're doing the crime, right? They don't know why themselves and you could put it to them and they might, you might understand them better than they understand themselves because you're capable of empathy and insight and they're not
0: right. And you can see it from a distance where they can. not yes they're inside of the whole thing
4: yes and you can observe their contradictions too so one of the things Dwayne would do he would often come back to talking about his mother He's like, my mother was a gangster you know she raised hard men I kind of got the impression from him that you know there wasn't much maternal love going on there but then if you said to him well Dwayne do you think you know that would have anything to do with you killing women he'd he'd get pissed at you. Like you're asking a stupid question. Like, no man, of course it's not. Like, why are you trying to make it always about that? And then three minutes later, he'd be back to talking about his mom. You think that was
0: in some way, like you insulting his mom in his head?
4: Yeah, that, that might be it. That might be saying that, like I'm blaming his mom who he might have some love or affection for to the highest of his capability. Right. But yeah, he can't look at her a, a objectively like that he can he okay sorry he can criticize her like or he can maybe look at it and say this is maybe what went wrong but the minute that i just take that and kind of bring it back to him with an extra bit added that's not allowed and so then you just go oh okay well that's how you know that's one of the ways i've learned to interact with Dwayne, and you just put that in the book and. Who knows if that'll be the same with the next guy we'll see it'll be very interesting how different are they are they will that be the same of all of them or will i imagine if i talk to someone like an edmund kemper once again not a 30 psychopath Dwayne is so this could be part of the difference here but edmund kemper might uh might be fine with talking about his mother being the root of all evil and why this happened and then again maybe not because i've seen an interview with him where he said. You know, they kept uh, blaming my mother and I didn't like what they had to say about her. And then the minute Kemper starts talking, he starts blaming his mother. Right. So maybe it is the same. It's fascinating, right? Like, how can this stuff not be interesting? (laughs) Seriously. And that's that's you guys must encounter this stuff sometimes where you have people going, oh, you know, why are you into this true crime stuff, this murder? Like, I don't get it. Like, what is it about? It's like, come on, you know what it's about. It's it's fascinating inherently stop pretending it is
3: (laughs) that's what i'm gonna say next time someone's like oh you're into true crime just say stop it right now it's fascinating and you know it yeah
0: i mean people love horror movies people love figuring out a mystery people do crossword puzzles and people untangle psychological knots like you yeah so it's, there, it is there fascinating. You go.
3: and it is fascinating and uh and we want to thank you for for coming on uh crawlspace here today with us
0: seriously an hour just flew by
3: yeah that's that's a lot of fun uh talking to you and you're a wealth of knowledge and would love to uh talk to you again
4: Yeah, I'll be back anytime you want me, guys. Uh, I've enjoyed talking to myself. And as you said, now we just flew by. Can you see how Cloyd and I were (laughs) sitting there drinking and talking for seven hours? Oh, so jealous. So
0: jealous. So jealous. Well, maybe Uh, we'll get the opportunity to hang with you and uh, have some bourbon or rye or whatever your your particular liquid of choice is.
4: Yeah, well, if you guys are ever in uh, uh, Toronto or I'm in – you guys are in Massachusetts, right? Yep. Yeah, I go through there every once in a while. Oh, let us together. Yeah,
3: please let us know.